is our prayer that our hearts long to know you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity we have to know you through it. And Father, as we come to the text today, move confidence out of the way. <laughs> Allow your word to speak in a mighty way. Tried and true, these ancient words. You have promised that we will not be the same when we encounter your word. And so we look to it today as we continue our journey through Colossians. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you would, turn to Colossians chapter 1. If you've just joined us, we are making our way through this book. And in 2023, we will be done, but... Uh, uh, <laughs> We're moving through. Uh, it is a rich book. Paul is penning this letter from prison in Rome. He will pen four letters, and this is one of those letters that he will pen. As you turn there to Colossians, if you get to Ephesians, you're almost there. If you get to 1 Thessalonians, you've gone too far. So that maybe helps you out a little bit. Jesus, when he took his disciples, and it was one of those intense moments, we're about to have the transfiguration in Matthew 17. In Matthew 16, Jesus pulls his disciples aside, and he says, who do people say that I am? <laughs> that question has reverberated throughout the generations, hasn't it? A recent poll by Barna Group Research, you'll be happy to know that ma the vast majority of Americans believe that Jesus was a real person. That's nice. <laughs> However, that survey also showed that not even half believe that Jesus is God in the United States. Yale University professor Yaroslav Pelikan writes in his rather monumental work, and he claims that it's his, it was his apex writing, that is Jesus through the centuries. Listen to what he writes. Regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. And when it comes to the theology or comes to the Old and New Testament, I would argue that or the study of Christ, that is Christology, is the central uh, hub that uh, all of the other theologies permeate out of. What you do with Christ affects your understanding of eschatology, right? Or pneumatology. If you don't know all these words, that's okay. But all of the studies spring from our study of Christ. One theologian writes in his work on dogmatics, which is principles which govern life, he states the doctrine of Christ is not the starting point, but it is certainly is the central point of the whole system of dogmatics. All other dogmas either prepare for it or are inferred from it. In it, study of Christ, as the heart of dogmatics, pulses the whole of the religious ethical life of Christianity. Paul understands that. As he's writing to a church he's never met, he's going to focus in on Christ in these verses in chapter 1, 
15 through 20. So powerful that one commentator state it's one of the most Christological high points in the entire New Testament. One states it is the high point. So let's go to the text and let's look at this. Remember Paul, typical of first century letters, he's done the greeting, he's moved to the prayer slash thanksgiving, and now he moves to this scene and he says in 115, he, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation. For all things, and watch that phrase because it'll occur eight times in these five to six verses. And all things in heaven and on earth were created by him. All things, whether visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers. All of this, I believe, is, is referring to the angelic host. Everything above, below, under it, over it, whatever, it's been created. All things were created through him and for him. And then in verse 17, and it's accentuated in the Greek, he's saying, he himself and no other is before all things, and all things are held together in him. But he doesn't end there. Not only is he head of creation, he's also head of the new creation. He says, Christ is the head of the body, the church, as well as the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, so that, here's the purpose, he himself may become first in all things. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in the Son, and through the Son reconcile all things to himself by making peace through the blood of his cross, through him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. This hymn, and some believe that this was a hymn that was being sung in the early church and Paul's adapted it, and we could go down that road, we won't this morning. Uh, it, it really has two major sections. The first is again that God, or Christ, excuse me, is, is head over the creation, then there's a little bit of an interlude, and then he's head over the church, the new creation. So let's unpack this and let's begin by looking at the first section where he states, Paul states, Christ is the image. It's, it's, that term is where we get the word icon. Literally in the Greek, it's the icon, something that looks like or represents something else, right? You look like your daddy. I've heard that more than once, which is getting scary as my dad gets older, <laughs> right? You know, uh, Jesus looks like his daddy because in essence, they are the same. And this is where distinction comes in with this term image of the invisible. I think of 2 Corinthians 4, 4. He says, Christ is the perfect revelation of God. Remember, Jesus even said, you've seen me, you've seen the Father, right? I and the Father are one. There's a fancy term for this. It's called binatarianism. And it, what it's saying is that Christ and God the Father are equal but distinct in person. There is a mystery here, right? And, and, and what this hymn is stating is Jesus is the image of the invisible. And I don't know about you, isn't that wonderful? <laughs> God has revealed the Father to us. Otherwise, we have an invisible God. It'd be like the force. Right? What, what are we talking about? And, and Christ has come to us. And he has revealed the invisible. And, he, and then he doesn't end there. And, and Paul states he's the firstborn over all creation. 
This term is used throughout the Greek translation of the Old Testament, etc. And it, yes, it can mean oldest son. And there are certain cults that want to argue that Jesus is an offspring. He's been created by God. And they may refer to this verse saying, well, look, he's the firstborn. Jesus was created. But this term can also mean nothing about being an offspring, but simply ranking or uniqueness. And there's a couple references just to, to highlight this. One is found in Exodus 4, where God says of Israel, you are my firstborn, you are my unique one. Or Psalm 89, where <clears throat> the, de, uh, God says of David, and I'll quote it, it says, I will appoint him to be my firstborn son, the most exalted of the earth's kings. The context, I would argue, says nothing about that he was created. In fact, the term is used, firstborn, if you notice, it's used in verse 18. It clearly can't be uh, offspring there. We're talking about ranking from the dead. He's the first of the resurrected. He's the unique one of it. Secondly, the immediate context of verse 16 is stating that, you no, know, this Jesus is also the creator. So we can't argue that this term is referring to eldest son. In this context, it's very clear. Jesus is the preeminent one. He is the unique one, you would argue, or he is the one that's ranked first and foremost. You say, well, what's the big deal about that? <clears throat> I had a man in a former church that I pastored on his deathbed, and he would not accept Jesus as God. He said, I think he was a great man who lived long ago, but I just can't buy that Jesus is God. And as I stated earlier in the George Barna research, not even half of Americans, while they recognize Jesus might have existed, are not going to give him title of God. Well, let me give you a few things about this in relationship to Scripture. First of all, Scripture is very clear that Jesus is God, Right? Think about John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was not a God. It is God, right? And in fact, it's so worded that it, it could be rendered that Jesus is fully God. He's God and yet distinct. It's beautiful. And so Scripture claims that Jesus is God. Uh, and there's several other texts we could cite. And, uh, another support for the deity of Christ the second, Jesus is fully aware and proclaims to be God, doesn't he? They didn't crucify Jesus because he claimed to be a great teacher. <laughs> they crucified him because he claimed to be God. And the religious rulers understood it. Remember that? The whole one when he said, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, down at the Siloam pool, or pool of Bethesda, and that whole scene... In John 8, Jesus said, before Abraham was born, I am. And it's very clear what he's stating. He's saying, I am God. And so scripture teaches it. Jesus proclaimed it in the red letters. Third, there is divine actions that are performed by Jesus. He forgives sins. Remember the religious rulers, no one can forgive sins except God. Well, you got it. Third, attributes of deity are ascribed to Jesus. He's all-knowing. He knew Nathaniel and where he was. And then finally, 
similar to God, Jesus serves as the object of our prayers. I love Al's prayer this morning. Hallowed be the Father's name, hallowed be the Son's name. Revelation 5, they've exalted God the Father, the one that sits on the throne, and that same accolades given to the Father are given to the Son, right? <laughs> Later, John tries to do that to an angel. Angel says, whoa, don't, don't bow before me. I am not God. And so here we see as this hymn breaks out, Paul states he's the image of God and he's the firstborn. He is God. The writer of Hebrews chapter 1 verses 2 and 3 states, in these last days, he's rehearsed how God has spoken through the prophets, etc. He says, he, God, has spoken to us in a son who he's appointed heir of all things and through whom he created the world. The son is the radiance of his glory, listen to this, and the representation of his essence. They're identical. That's why Jesus can say, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one, right? And he sustains, Christ sustains all things by his powerful word. And so when he has accomplished cleansing for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, writes the writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews 1. And so this is echoed through here in Colossians that Jesus is the image he is the firstborn, and we get to verse 16, he is the creator. Now, to all my kids out there, you, you're learning about prepositions, I take it. Some of you already know. And remember, prepositions are the wrong part of speech to end a sentence with. So there you are, right? Some of you will catch that later. Uh, yes. I want you to watch the prepositions here because they are key. Every word is inspired. There's not a mistake. So watch the prepositions. For all things in heaven and on earth were created first by him. Now that's how the Net Bible, that's the text I'm using, is rendering this. Uh, it could be rendered and probably better rendered in him. Yes, this phrase could be referring to Jesus' role, uh, instrumental idea, but I think the idea here is that everything is dependent on him. So first of all, all things dependent on him, in or by. You could use either one there. The notice, notice the next preposition. All things were created through him, right? Which is certainly indicating he is the principal cause. Know about you, growing up, I always thought, you know, it's God who created the world. And you forget, no, 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 no. Jesus, since they are one, he was right there with the Father creating this globe. And, and in fact, notice what this hymn states. Not only is it through him, that's what it says in verse 16, and this is amazing. It is for him. Creation was created. The goal of creation is Christ. You know, the, the rabbinic writings, Jewish writings in the Intertestament period and later taught that this created globe that we are on is created for the Messiah. Interesting, isn't it? This idea, that this is all for him. Remember the triumphal entry in Luke's gospel? And the religious rulers were having a holy hissy because there was some folks wanting to, to praise Christ. And they said, you need to quiet them down. And Jesus says, if, if they don't, the stones will cry out. 
all of creation. I guess the old saying, he's just about as smart as a box of rocks, is an insult to the rocks, <laughs> right? All of creation is to exalt this one called Christ. And I was thinking about macroevolution. You think about it, what they're espousing is that there is no cause, there's no dependency. Through chance, we came to be. Consequently, there is no meaning of life, right? There, there's no purpose. There's, there's no end goal. That's the, that's the beauty of creationism is no, no, no. We do have purpose. We do have meaning, and there is an end to this. A friend of mine studying uh, genetic engineering at Ohio State, she's doing her doctoral program. She said, I was a devout atheist. <laughs> There's no way I was going to embrace that Christian stuff, she said. And she said, in my doctoral program studying, and she said, no, this is too wonderfully made. <laughs> There's something that's behind the design and, and what this is all for, and that's what this text is stating. It's Christ. And so evolution ultimately, here's the rub, refuses to recognize verse 17. And look at verse 17. It says, he, Christ, is before all things. And not that that is referring to a temporal location. The before here is speaking of preeminence. He trumps it all and all things are held together. Not only is he the creator, and it's through him that's dependent on him, etc., and that he is the goal, but he is sustaining this globe. That's good news on a morning when we're wearing masks and wondering what in the world is happening to this globe we live on, right? Christ is in charge. He is the sustainer. He is the supreme one. Cosmic preservation and cosmic providence are linked to Christ. In fact, it's interesting. You'll notice that created is used in verse 16 twice. The first time, the tense is referring to a past event. The second time it's cre the created is used, it's referring to an ongoing idea. In other words, he's actively involved. This isn't the old man who wound the clock and hopes it all turns out correctly. That's not our Christ. He's in charge. Our kids were given a Christmas gift. It was one of those hand drones. Have you seen those suckers? You know, and they were running them through the house, you know, zoom, you know, and uh, I was a little concerned. <laughs> I said, uh, you know, careful, uh, you know, and our kids go, hey, we're in control. We got this, All right? That's what Christ is saying. Far more is at stake than a cheap knickknack. <laughs> and, and far more control than even my kids is Christ. And he says, I got it. We're okay. I'm in charge. Concerned about what might happen in an election or, or what's happening to our country or this pandemic. It's okay. God's in charge. Your personal life's kind of unraveling a little bit. Some of you shared with me this week. It's been a rough week. Lots happened. Christ is in charge. He's got it. His plan cannot be thwarted. 
His power cannot be undermined. His presence cannot be nullified. That's our Savior. And so as Paul writes to a church that he's never met, who undoubtedly, as we're going to see as we move through Colossians, there's these false teachers coming along, and you can just hear it. Are you sure? You know, it's very (laughs) narrow-minded. You sound like a fundamentalist. Really, Christ... You know, we we need to be more open-minded and loving. And and so the faith of these these believers at Colossae, they're they're waning, they're struggling. And Paul says, look to Christ. Don't forget who you have sworn allegiance to. (laughs) He is the image of God. He is the firstborn over all. And he is the great creator. that, you could just say hallelujah and end. But he's not done, right? He says not only is he over creation, he's over the church. And this brings it even more to home for these saints who are struggling at Colossae. He says in verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. And as he moves through this and he says, listen, look at what he's saying here, right? Christ is the one who reigns. This head idea is, is authority. He says he reigns over all, and, and, and the church is originating from him. As we're going to see, that's been made possible in verse 20 through the blood of the cross. Right? This is where he's headed. Schreiner, in his commentary, in his biblical theology, states Jesus rules over death because he is the first to conquer death. And so, The hymn states, he is, as well as the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead. He is victorious. That's why Paul can state in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ is not victorious, we might as well just go home. We're just playing a bunch of games because our our religion is useless. No. No. And he says as well here as he's referring to the church that he, it's so that, the purpose being that he may become first in all things. He is the preeminent one. And to secure that, the text tells us, so God was pleased, it reminds me of Ephesians 2, to have all his fullness dwell in the Son. Well, what does that mean? means all the attributes of, and activities of God, the, the Spirit, the Word, the wisdom, the glory, are perfectly displayed in Christ. Jesus stated, if you've seen me, which I mentioned, you've seen the Father. I wrote down, without Jesus bearing the essence of the Father, we have no Savior. Right? If Jesus is not fully God, then... His sacrifice for us is useless. Think about that. It also indicates, by the way, that we need divine intervention. There is no way humanly we could have saved ourselves. (laughs) That's why it's folly to think, well, if I give enough money or if I do good things, God's going to love me. His love stems from the Son and what He has done for us, right? not what we do for him. And so in verse 20, after laying this all out about the preeminence of Christ's relationship to the church, 
he says, and through him, and he's going to repeat that through twice. Did you catch this? But the first one is through him to reconcile, and another 50 cent theological term. What, what does that mean? To reconcile is, is the change of relationship from hostility to harmony and peace between two parties. I want you to turn to a text. It's in 2 Corinthians. So uh, you're going to go back in the New Testament. If you get to Romans, you've gone too far. First and then 2 Corinthians. This to me is one of the richest passages in the entire New Testament. 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 18. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 18, all these things are from God who reconciled, there's the same term, us to himself through Christ and who has given us a ministry of reconciliation. In other words, he explains, Jesus Christ, God, was reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's trespasses or sins against them. And he has given us the message of reconciliation. You getting it? <laughs> He's beating that drum as he writes in verse 20, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making his plea through us. We plead with you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. And here's how, verse 21, God made the one who did not know sin, that's Christ, to be sin for us, so that in him, and here's the mystery of it all, we become the righteousness of God. Going back to this hymn, this is what Paul's echoing when he wrote in 2 Corinthians. We have been reconciled to God through Christ. Again, watch the prepositions through him to reconcile all things to himself. And I think that's, that himself is God the Father by making peace through the blood of his cross. So Christ reconciles and he gives us peace, which both go hand in hand. The irony in the text is how the peace is obtained. It's through the most horrific death ever devised by mankind, a crucifixion, right? It's, it's through the blood of Christ. And, and so the creator of the universe becomes a, becomes a criminal to die for us. <laughs> Who would have thought of such a plan? No wonder Paul says in Romans 11, who has known the mind of God? Who would have ever devised such a plan that Christ would do this for us? And so through Christ, we've been reconciled and we have peace, is what he's highlighting here in this text. Through the blood of the Christ, or the, his cross. And this really goes back to what his prayer, had, how it ended in verses 13 and 14, Right? He delivered us, verse 13, from the power of darkness, transferring us to the kingdom of the Son He loves. In Him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so it comes full circle. It's how He started leading us into this hymn, and He closes it. Stephen Vellum, in his The God, the Son Incarnate, he writes, The incarnation, that is Christ becoming flesh, and the crucifixion of Christ served to extend the image and glory of God himself into humanity and the rest of creation. And in this glorious hymn found nestled in Colossians chapter 1, 
we find an exaltation of Christ, a supremacy that is so beautiful. That leaves us with three things. Let me give you three to hang on your beak today. Number one, our theologizing or our discussion here about him is not merely an academic question. It's not something we simply are going to ponder and discuss. It, it is a, a matter of life and death, is it not? In a day of rampant philosophical and religious pluralism, it is our joy and privilege to proclaim him who alone can save. What will you do with Jesus? It decides not only the kind of life you'll live now, but where you will spend all eternity. Right? As some of you know, I see these coexist bumper stickers and I just want to ram the car. <laughs> it, it's awful. Because I'm so, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. There is no coexisting when it is referring to eternal destiny. And, and that's what Paul is stating here in this. He is the one. <laughs> There's no one else. And so we can discuss doctrine and we can do all of these gymnastics careful. Jesus is exclusive. And as C.S. Lewis stated, either he's some crazy kook that walked this earth 2,000 years ago, or he is truly who he says he is. There is no option here. It's one or the other. <laughs> you can't have your cake and eat it too. And so we look at this text, and the first is, what are you doing with Jesus? It's a life and death matter. Secondly, the supremacy of Christ speaks to God's grace, love, and power, doesn't it? Because Christ is the head, we have peace, we have hope, comfort, and joy. A hymn that was written nearly a hundred years ago is relevant then as it is now. Listen to these words. O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see? There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and catch the next line, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. A recognition of Christ's sovereignty brings healing and strength in the midst of cataclysmic conflict and personal catastrophes, doesn't it? And Paul says to the church at Colossae, look to Christ. Look at Christ. <laughs> Who is it that you have sworn allegiance to? Why are you chewing your fingernails down to the stubs? He is the sovereign one. And he loves you dearly. And so turn your eyes on him. Look to him for comfort, for peace and hope. And there's one more as we look at this text. Since the supremacy of Christ permeates every atom of this universe, we are called to submit to him, worship him, love him, and glorify him. Our lives are centered on Christ. Thus, injustices, 
accusations, wrongs must not eclipse our exaltation of Him. It's easy to lick the wounds, isn't it? And to get sidetracked, I have to confess, that happened to even me this week. I was mowing the lawn and the Lord and I had a discussion. He won. <laughs> My lines weren't very straight, but I, I did get the lawn mowed. We look to him. He is to be the exalted one. And we can't let that distract from our view of Christ and our, our look to him. We need believers who are quick to forgive and forget. We also need believers who are quick to love. Divisions within the body of Christ, whether through bitterness or gossip, disrupts the body. And be careful because the head of the body is Christ. And we don't want to do anything to tarnish Christ, do we? And so when we look at this passage, which we could have spent a whole 10 weeks on, it's so glorious. Look to Christ. He is the firstborn over the creation and head of this order that we live in. He is also head of the church, the new creation. It's through him. It's by him. It's for him. And so who is this Jesus? He's more than a prophet. He's more than a wise sage or an ancient Jewish rabbi that walked this globe 2,000 years ago. He is the creator, the head of the church. He's our savior, and he's our Lord. Amen. Father, we marvel that you, before you created this universe, had already orchestrated events. You and your Son and the Spirit worked out a plan even creating a perfect globe and a perfect garden, you knew that humanity, we would blow it. <laughs> and the sin of Adam and Eve have passed upon every generation. And as the writer of Ephesians states, we are energized by Satan. We are followers of him until your son came and died on a cross and his blood paid the price for our sin and through a recognition of that price that's paid, a repentance, Lord, we have forgiveness and we have a restored relationship with the creator of the universe, <laughs> the, the head of the church, your son, our savior, Jesus, in whose name we pray.